It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. I can't believe we're in December, Amy. Oh, <laughs> crazy. This has been crazy. And too wet. So wet. Yeah. I'm sick of it. Um, what was your best part of last week? Well, we went up to Bellingham and saw oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mount Vernon. We saw Ryan's dad and girlfriend. And then Lucy and I quickly walked the Western campus because it was so flipping oh, cold. Because she is going to be thinking of schools next school. Year. Yeah. And so we walked it fast. And it was so funny. I didn't think it changed much. And she mm-hmm. was, I think she thought it looked kind of dated and old too. But <laughs> there's nobody on campus to yeah. make it look lively. So, yeah. But it was still fun. Yeah. Still well, good. Fun. Uh, In the spirit of Christmas, I just finished a sweet story, The 13th Gift. It's a memoir by Joanne Hoyce-Smith. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Joanne worked as a reporter for the Dayton Daily News for 17 years and released her book back in 2014. So it's been a few years. But she wrote about losing her husband, Rick, unexpectedly, like Hmm. two months prior to Christmas back in 1999. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The sad thing is he had recognized that he had a heart problem, mm-hmm. and he postponed his surgery because he wanted to wait and do it after the holidays. Holidays. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so she's navigating single parenting, three kids, Ben 17, Nick 12, Megan 10. I think we can relate to three mm-hmm. kids, you know. And all while maintaining her job and trying to deal with the first Christmas without her husband. Uh, she missed Rick and was trying to, you know, Wish away Christmas. Uh, Just hurry it. Hurry it through. Her sister-in-law kept offering, oh, should I shop for you, you know, for Christmas? And Joanne just couldn't seem to embrace anything about Christmas. didn't want to do it, period. Didn't want to do it, yeah. Yeah, I know the blamer. Megan, the youngest, of course, really wanted the tree and wanted to decorate the house. They're kids. They're still still magical. Totally. Um, The older brothers are really struggling, though. Ben was staying out super late, and Nick couldn't sleep in his room anymore. Mm. Um, So, obviously, they're just in pain, kind of dealing with their own way. Then one morning, in, like, this mad dash, the kids miss the school bus. Joanne's, like, yelling to get the kids in the car. She nearly ran over this, like, poinsettia that's in her driveway. And she scooped it up and threw it in the house, really irritated, like, (laughs) you know. And this was... I can relate to that I could, too. I mean, I could totally get that, that. being like, oh, more. One more thing. You know, but this was the first of 12 gifts the family would, like, mysteriously receive. And Poinsettia came with a handwritten note that read, On the first day of Christmas, your true friends give to you one Poinsettia for all of you. Uh, The family, you know, wondered who it came from, and she's irritated. (laughs) But as the days went on, they received a gift each day with this clever note with the 12 days of Christmas ending Mm -hmm. with your true friends give to you. And at first, Joanne was really annoyed with these kind gestures. And then she saw the effect on herself and the kids. Each evening, someone would secretly, you know, mm-hmm. leave a gift. Uh, next came How two... fun. I know, totally. Two bags of bows, three rolls of gift wrap. I mean, they're really practical. Four mm-hmm. gift boxes, five angel note cards. I mean... Which I love. I know, love. With my new minimalist. Yeah, it's so... Attitude. It's practical. Yeah. <laughs> And as the families received the gifts, like Joanne's heart kind of thawed, and it started to. She started to embrace the Christmas season, and they all kept wondering who these gifts are coming from. 
And it kind of had that, as we like to talk about, that ripple effect, of course. It kind of prompted them to do something kind of others. Like, it made her think, oh, what can we do? And they were clearing out the basement um, for Nick because they were going to move his room down there with, mm-hmm. with Ben. And they were clearing a whole bunch of stuff out because Nick could no longer be in his room. And he just needed a change yeah. because of his dad. Yeah. So they cleared out all these garbage bags. And she took him to Goodwill where she met this dad named Charles who was looking for a gift for his eight-year-old daughter. She ended up talking to him and ended up giving her, like, all of Megan's stuff. Mm. You know, like, some things that she never used. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really sweet. And then he helped her unload the items. And then she said Merry Christmas. And it was kind of interesting. She says it was the first time she could say Merry Christmas, which seems pretty menial. Like, but yeah. it's a huge thing when you're hurting. You're in pain. You can't even. said it and meant it. And meant versus, it. Yeah. yeah. So Joanne came home to another night where her son, the oldest Ben, made spaghetti for the whole family. Unlike him. Wow. He pulled out the Christmas yeah. china. You know, I mean, then a co-worker of her husband's, Terry, came by and he had put, you know, they put together a little spread thinking he was the guy behind all the secret, secret gifts. It turns out he wasn't, but he gave them this, you know, envelope filled with cash and gift cards. One of Rick's fellow employees decided to give his bonus to the family, and it kind of everybody in the company decided to do the same. So they end up giving the family $3,000. And so Joanne and the kids were just blown away by this generosity, and they kept thinking, "We, we have to do something with this blessing, you know, and just to keep others in mind. So kind of randomly, but they were at this restaurant, Nick invited a young man in fatigues to sit with them who was all by himself sitting alone so as more days passed more gifts showed up six holiday cups seven golden angels eight cookie cutters 10 dancing santas 11 christmas mice which are these little mar- uh you know cherries dipped in oh. chocolate made into, you know really cute but joanne's still just loving that nick saw someone alone yeah, in fatigue and, and thought wanted to, to help yeah, yeah just, just invite them very thoughtful yeah, I, just, I really. Love I, I just, I love that part of this. I think story. a lot of times we're nervous to do stuff like that, right? And so you I hear that, that tug only, in your heart, yeah. and you go, "Oh, okay." But he followed. And he followed it. He did so it. So I love that. Uh, Joanne and her kids decided to make a huge spread, um, not only for her family and Rick's family that would come visit them on Christmas Eve, but they were hoping to kind of catch their true friends on that last gift. So uh, her mom's there, and everyone's there, and t- you know, she's Joanne's stalling. And, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's like at past seven and the mom's like, we've seen the first star. That's their thing. They say, when you see the first star, it's time to eat. So anyways, they went ahead and ate dinner. And I kind of like that tradition. I, I know. Might, that's sweet. I might start that. I know. It's pretty cute. Then the next morning, on the 12th day, they received a Christmas tree um, with 12 brass balls. It was back on their back deck. So it wasn't in the front like all mm-hmm. the other gifts. And... You know, I think that just, it was just really sweet. But the final gift, the 13th gift, came years later, you know, when they found out the true identity of these friends. So Joanne had suspected her sister-in-law, Dorothy, was somehow behind it. So she kept bugging her and bugging her. And finally, one summer after just pestering her, uh, Dorothy revealed that she knew who they who they were. And so she, she asked, you know, would you please find out if they'd share their identity? A few weeks passed, and Joanne finally learned the, that the people that were giving the gifts were total strangers they their names are susan and george armstrong they lived in a nearby town the sweet thing is these families eventually got to meet and susan revealed to joanne that they had delivered a stillborn baby andrea 
this was years ago, and the Armstrong hit their family hard. And so somebody years ago mysteriously gave them a poinsettia, and that started these 12 days of mm-hmm. Christmas giving. And she, she said, like Joanne's kids, it has a similar effect, you know, on Suzanne and the kids. And it touched them deeply. And they were so moved by it, they want to pay it forward. So they've been doing this for probably 10, 15 years oh, forward. That. And the cool thing is they get their kids involved. So mm-hmm. their kids were up putting the, get the gifts in the front and the back. So now Joanne retells this story every year to her grandchildren and shows them the handmade cards with these really cute messages that they had received. And she uh, talks about, you know, leave, leaving the uh, mystery for others to solve. People wonder, are you mm-hmm. giving gifts? And she's like, I'm not going to tell. even more fun. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to tell, but yeah. maybe. But maybe. I love that. I just love the idea. I would love that to be something maybe we do sometime to bless a family yes. that we, somebody lets us Good know about. Plan. You know? I love it. I love it. I love it. And I, the, I think, too, what's so sweet about that story is that they turn such tragedy right. into something so beautiful. Right. And simple. Oh, absolutely. And just simple but and big, loving. Big impact. It, yeah, exactly. So we'll have to do that. Yeah. So I used to be one of those people who celebrated Christmas year round. Oh, it was never yeah. too early for me to play Christmas music. Oh, I used to I do know. It all the yeah. time. Wasn't uncommon for me to watch Christmas movies in the summer. Yeah. I'm embarrassed to say. No, I kind of like that. <laughs> I yeah. So when ads came out for Christmas in July, I was ecstatic. Not for the sales on mattresses and all the commercials right, and right. the company, but because it meant that Christmas was in sight yeah. and other people would notice that it was like six months away. I still love Christmas like a kid, but I hold back until after Thanksgiving now so that I can celebrate all the holidays. Right, right. With my movies, I love the Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, Christmas. that's a cute one. It is so cute. It's my favorite version of Scrooge. Christmas in Connecticut. Have you ever seen that I one? I still have oh, I got to so see that. Good. Yes. Yeah. The Bishop's Wife, and on top of my list is It's a Wonderful Life with Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart. I didn't like it as a kid because it was gold, <laughs> black and white, which is I weird. Know, which is so fun. Yeah, I know. But I just, I wasn't interested in it, and it's super weird because I love I Love Lucy and an assortment of black and white shows and movies over the years. Right, yeah. But this one just didn't interest me, so I, I never watched it. But I've made up for lost time the last five years. And I can see why Frank Capra, he's the director, would say that it was his favorite movie. The movie he was most proud of. Keep in mind, it wasn't a hit back in the day. Really? That's interesting. I I didn't know that. That's a good interesting fact. Apparently in the aftermath, Frank Capra's production company went into bankruptcy. And it made Jimmy Stewart question his acting abilities. The movie was nominated for five Academy Awards, but didn't win any. I know. That's pretty spectacular, you know? And it was considered a box office flop, not even clearing the production costs, which I was surprised about. But it became the Christmas classic because someone forgot to renew the copyright and the television stations obviously could play for free. So they kept doing it. And I'm so grateful for that error now because that's why we've seen it. For those of you who haven't seen it, what are you waiting for? That's me. I've got to be honest. I have not seen it. You haven't seen it? No. Oh, my gosh. I know. 
So you need to just you need to just head home. Go I'll do that after come this. Back and after listen this. to the rest of the podcast. We'll I feel tomorrow. bad because these are spoilers. I'm going to tell oh, you all about Okay, well, I'll try not to. So It's a Wonderful Life is about George Bailey, a seemingly regular Joe who becomes despondent that he's never made a difference. An angel sent down to help him, and George gets the opportunity to see a world where he didn't exist and how he impacted his friends in his town. So Jimmy Stewart, he played George Bailey, and besides his rank of Major General in the United States Air Force, Jimmy Stewart also starred in 80 films. Oh, between, my gosh. I know. I didn't know that That's until I was lot. researching this. Um, between 1935 and 1991. Wow. I loved him in Rear Window. Okay. Have you seen that? Please tell oh, me you have. No, window. I don't think I have. <laughs> and Vertigo. Um, those are my favorite Hitchcock okay. movies. I didn't realize that Jimmy Stewart graduated from Princeton. Wow. With a I didn't degree either. in architecture. He was awarded a scholarship for graduate studies in architecture, but he had been drawn to theater and music. His mother was a pianist, so music was instilled in him early on. His father owned a hardware store, and when someone couldn't pay their bill, the father accepted an old accordion as payment. And that, to me, I'm like, that sounds like George Bailey right there. But apparently with the help of the local barber, Jimmy Stewart learned to play the accordion, and he used it a lot of times offstage, I think, probably as a stress release. But I respect and admire Jimmy Stewart for the war hero that he was, and also admire the persona he displayed. He has... He was an everyman type of actor. Okay. Playing respectable characters with conflicts, but integrity and, you know... Strong morals. After the assassination of Senator Robert R. Kennedy in 1968, he joined Charlton Heston, Kirk Douglas, and Gregory Peck with a statement calling for the support of President Lyndon B. Johnson's Gun Control Act. Wow. I know. I was shocked to read that. Wow. He served on the National Vice Chairman of Entertainment for the Red Cross. Okay. The American Red Cross. Yeah. Fundraising to raise money for wounded soldiers in Vietnam. He he lost his son in Vietnam. So, um, you know, and he was a soldier himself. So he contributed to improving and restoring his hometown in Pennsylvania. He also had a signature charity event. I love this. Wow. The Jimmy Stewart Relay Marathon Race. Oh. Which ran annually. Was he a runner or just, he just, you know, I don't know. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, But this race ran annually since 1982, raising millions of dollars for the um, Child and Family Development Center at St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica, California. Um, I also awesome. It's so I, uh, yeah, of course I love that because now I got to look up that event, see if it's still going, but. Apparently, he and Henry Fonda got into a fist fight over oh, politics back wow. in 1947, and they decided never to discuss politics again in order to save their friendship. Well, I love that. I do, too. Because I think that's a good thing. Yep. In 1988, he joined Burt Lancaster, Catherine Hepburn, Ginger oh, Rogers. Her. Yeah. Oh, I love Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Ungles and Pond. I haven't seen that movie. Okay, that's a good one. Okay, anyway. It's too, too current for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Martin Scorsese addressing Congress with a plea to maintain artistic integrity and refused to colorize because I guess the Ted oh. Turner classic TV channel was trying to colorize a lot of classic okay. black and white films yeah. and they were pleading to not do that. So, obviously, love Jimmy Stewart. Then there was Donna Reed also in It's a Wonderful Life. Like Stewart, she was a registered Republican, but she took a very different approach to the war. She was concerned her oldest son might be drafted. So, in 1967, she became a co-chair of an anti-war advocacy group called 
Another Mother for Peace. Oh, which I that's that kind name. of a sound like of today. I, that's what I thought too. You know? So Another Mother for Peace. I just love it. And their slogan was, war is not healthy for children and other living things. So I think that Donna Reed would have joined with our Fridays for the (laughs) climate. Yes, exactly. We did. She was opposed to nuclear power plants and had a very strong anti-war ethic. It's just so interesting because when I started looking into Donna Reed for this podcast, I came across an article that said if you were looking for smut or controversy on Donna Reed, you weren't going to find any. And just... Wow. You know, talk about a, a reputation. Right, because she's kind of a bombshell. Oh, absolutely. You, she you, was, you just make that expect. Yeah. Um, Donna, Reed, Donna Reed was born on a farm in Iowa and was the oldest of five kids. In 1936, her high school chemistry teacher gave her a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I now need to look that oh, book up. because yeah. After reading the book, she won the lead in the school play. She was voted for campus queen and was in the top 10 of her graduating class. I just think it gave her some confidence. Right. I don't think the book was. Yeah. But um, I'm still very curious. She wanted to be a teacher, but she couldn't afford college, okay. traditional college. So at her aunt's suggestion, she headed west and was able to get her associate's degree. If she could have paid for a four-year university, she would have been a teacher, and we wouldn't even, you know, likely, wow. we wouldn't even know the name Donna Reed. So once That's again, really amazing. it's a blessing in disguise. Much like a lot of It's a Wonderful Life, which you won't get because you haven't seen. I know. <laughs> she inf- insisted on finishing with her associate's degree before signing on with MGM, which I, oh, I admire. Yeah. MGM lent her to RKO Pictures for her role as Mary Bailey, and she would say it was the most difficult film she ever did. No director ever demanded as much of me, is what she said. Wow. A co-star later described Reed as... A real Iowa girl. There's a bedrock decency to people in the Midwest. They're thoughtful and ready to help you if something needs to be done. She never lost that Midwest girl. That was, um, so someone from the uh, the Donna Reed show, Shelly Faberis, yeah. said that about her. And once again, just reputation. Right. Love it. So being the dorky fan girl that I am, obviously, just that I know this already, I had to read this book that I found called 52 Little Life Lessons from It's a Wonderful Life by Bob oh, Welch, sweet. who I guess is an Oregonian. He lives oh, in Eugene. Wow. Small world. I man. know. I obviously won't cover all of the lessons because 52 is a lot, but just to touch on a few of them that stood out for me. Keep in mind, he points out the blatant sexism at the time because okay. this movie is, sure. you know, it has things and encourages readers and viewers to look past that for the message okay. in the movie. So one of them was helping others requires sacrifices. George Bailey was constantly helping others. He jumped into the icy water to save his brother, which would cost him his hearing in one year. Oh, wow. He was looking out for the pharmacist and paid the consequences for it when the pharmacist kept hitting him to the point where his ear bled. I can't watch that scene anymore, but it was another example that George was thinking of others his entire life from childhood through adulthood. He wants to leave Bedford Falls, but chooses to help his father. George isn't the only one making sacrifices. Mary, in the movie, is smart and resourceful in her own way. George's mother even says she's a girl that would help George find answers, which I love. I think we need friends like that. It's Mary who thinks to offer up the honeymoon money to help with the building and loan. She skips out on their fancy honeymoon and creates one in an old drafty house. So she's a practical gal. She's very practical. Welch in the book notes that we should look for friends that bring out the best in us. 
like Mary does for George. So I love that. Another thing he said was, you matter in the world. Welch pointed out that it's easy to feel small and insignificant in the world, just like George, but we're all proverbial pebbles, just like you were talking about, in in the water, creating those ripples that go much further than we think. Clarence, the angel, his line, strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many others, and when he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? So without George, his brother dies in the pond. So then his brother isn't around to save two transports full of soldiers during the war. Without George, the town is a different vibe, far from upbeat and happy. The druggist becomes the town drunk, the one that had slapped him on his ears. The cab driver, Ernie, has a horrible family life. Nick... The, the bar owner, he serves hard drinks for men who want to get drunk fast. Violet, one of the ladies in there, she becomes a full-fledged lady of the night. And Mary, weird, she has to wear glasses. I don't okay. know why. How that, yeah, what's that about? I don't know. And as Clarence, the angel, puts it, she becomes an old maid. Okay. Anyway, Pottersville is full of seedy establishments and unhappy residents, to say the least. George, like many people, felt he was pretty insignificant in this world. And I love that this movie, it demonstrates how wrong he was in that we all make a difference in the world. And the sooner we believe that, the larger the ripple we create. Yeah. So I I love that Welch reminded that we all matter in the world. He also said, um, the movie points out, to stop sometimes to count your blessings. You have to keep in mind the movie was set during the Depression. But the movie is full of celebrations. Bedford Falls High, class of 1928, their graduation dance. Mm. At the Bailey home, there's a big celebration. And, of course, George and Mary's wedding. When the Martini family can move into a new home at Bailey Park, it's a cause for celebration. Mary and George come out with... Kind of what seems like a christening of the house, like okay, a housewarming sweet. thing. Michael Williams wrote a book called Me, The Essential, It's a Wonderful Life, and pointed out that Mary's blessings of the, over the martini home is a cross between a Polish wedding tradition of presenting newlyweds with bread, salt, and wine. Oh, yeah. And a Russian housewarming tradition of bringing bread and salt to new homeowners, which I thought was interesting yeah. since the martinis were Italian, so they weren't wow, kind of one of yeah. those, but... In Frank Capra's autobiography, The Name Above the Title, which he wrote in 1971, he suggests that this whole scene was a microcosm of his life. He was born in Sicily. They immigrated to the United States where his family struggled. They lived in poverty and kind of in Potter-like slums. So Martini worked hard with George's help and was able to secure a loan to get out of the Potter slums. Another reminder of hope. And definitely a cause for celebration. Oh, so I, I love that. that yeah. part. Um, well, sh- another point in his lessons, bitterness backfires on the one who's bitter. Oh, yeah. So this notion reminded me of the quote I thought came from a Buddhist teaching, but yeah. apparently was from a 1930s book by Emmett Fox called Sermon on the Mount. Holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah. I always thought that was a Buddhist thing, but it's not a Buddhist proverb. It appears... That the concept was popularized with the early teachings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh. Which I thought was interesting. That was very interesting, but it kind of really fits. It does. It absolutely yeah. does. Regardless of the origins, I love the teachings, and it's definitely depicted through Henry Potter in the movie. When George's dad, Peter Bailey, describes Mr. Potter, he says he's a frustrated and sick man, sick in the head and sick in the soul, if he has one. Oh. 
You have to watch this movie. Seriously. Not tonight, but maybe tomorrow. And they lost to the battle. It is colorized. Part of Jimmy Stewart, he said that part of why he didn't like the colorized stuff is it looks like an Easter egg rendition of the movies, and it kind of does. But I, I, yeah, I'm torn. I'm torn. I like both versions. But bitterness is self-induced, and uh, the misery that Potter shows with his disgust at the Bailey family, he's mad at them because he hasn't been able to buy out. He can't control the Baileys. Right. And it drives him crazy. He just gets madder and madder. I mean, for Potter, his goal is to acquire more, not just material objects, but power and control over people. I don't think he has a single person in the movie who cares about him. And it shows. He's unhappy, miserable, and while the Baileys are revered by the community, he's quite the opposite. That clearly eats at his soul and really leaves him the only one in the movie who's broke, oh, really. Yeah. It's interesting. So you'll have yeah. to watch and yeah. then get back to me. But another one of the 52 lessons, desperation can be the catalyst for great things. So there's a bank run scene in the movie that it's Definitely a desperate one. Instead of the cliche, desperate times call for desperate measures, Welch in this book notes that desperate times trigger imaginative solutions. I just love that take on it. Yeah, that's cool. George and Mary get creative with keeping the building and loan running, offering up their honeymoon fund for people to get by, encouraging them to work together. After all, if they cave to Potter, he really will control the whole town. Welch points out that people respond in two ways to desperation, with panic and defeat, or they use it to inspire them. George experiences both, and thank goodness he doesn't accept the defeat. Thank goodness he has a change in attitude. It's a good reminder, though, and I know it's fiction, but we all have that in us. I read once that Lisa Kudrow was pulled out of the show Frasier oh, yeah. after three days. So she was in the show, then, and she was playing Roz or something. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't watch the show. I don't remember show. that. I, I did it occasionally, but yeah. But three days into filming, they pulled her, and I just I can't imagine the devastation. I her. I do, too. She must have felt with that. However, she'd go on to say that uh, had she stayed on as Roz on Frasier, she would have missed out on Friends. And she would never been, yeah. She wouldn't have been Phoebe. Wow. Which Friends was We would have missed that cat, exactly. the cat song. Whatever that cat was. <laughs> Smelly cat. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I still sing that. Um, which was wildly successful, and I'm glad she didn't give up. Wow, that's cool. Because Friends wouldn't be friends without Phoebe. Sure. And it's funny that that story comes to mind for me, since I so vividly remember. Did you watch Friends? I did, okay. yeah. Monica talking Phoebe into watching the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I don't remember so, that part. Oh, yeah, okay. So, probably because I love the movie. And, yeah. But anyway, Phoebe goes into a rant about how it's a sucky life because oh. she she didn't watch it to the end. And she talks about how truly awful his, his life is. <laughs> and she goes back and watches, you know, Old Yeller and all these movies that her mother had turned off ahead of, like, oh, once okay. they got to, okay, this is how it ended, which I can see me doing that to my boys. But, um Anyway, I think she turned it off the end because it just was too much for right. the mom. And it was she didn't want to pass that on to Phoebe. But Phoebe and George both reminded me to keep going when things are rough. Better days are ahead. And, like, yeah. when Phoebe probably, or excuse me, Lisa Kudrow was probably super disappointed when she lost that job with she, Frazier. Yeah. Something better was on the horizon. Who knew? Yeah. She didn't know, yeah. but it was. So, Welch, another 
point that he puts out with his 52 things, Underdogs Matter, which Aww, I love this. Oh, yeah. This might be my favorite point that he makes. The Baileys are the champions of the underdogs in the world. Where Mr. Potter looks at the people and what they can give him. Right. The Baileys are always asking what they can do for others. Mm. For their building and loan, it doesn't prove what you do to deserve our help. Yeah. But instead, how can we help you help yourself? Mm. Which I, yeah. I, I love that take on it. All the people the Baileys help aren't asking for handouts. Ernie's working hard in his cab company to get a loan for his house. Mr. Martini works long hours at the bar to make enough money for a home loan. George even sees the underdog in Violet Bick when others might see her as a hussy. George takes the time to show her that he cares about her and that she matters. I love underdogs. They're fierce. They're tough. That scrappiness is what makes them successful, I think. Yeah, totally. They have to work harder than others. And it makes them better people, as awful as that is. Yeah. None of us want hardship. But it really, it it makes you who you are. I just love the simplicity of Bedford Falls. Welch said that Thoreau would be proud (laughs) of Bedford Falls. It's an uncluttered life. We can live in truth and beauty. Also, living simply helps us appreciate what's important, which... It's absolutely true. Yeah. I love that he has a nod to Star Wars, uh-huh. noting the power of the dark side, and sometimes the lure that things, you know, aren't always as they might appear. Right. I especially loved his reminder that individuals are strengthened when they can rely on the group, and we need to put the emphasis on relationships and connections. Yeah. Which, instead of material objects. The thing I love most about It's a Wonderful Life, besides... It being a Christmas movie is the message that it really comes down to everyone matters. I think we need that more in the world right now. I love that Welch pointed out that we work better together when we rely on each other. Yeah. When we depend on each other. Like logs on a fire, we burn brightest when huddled together with others. He pointed that out. I just, I I love that analogy. I brought it down like three different times. We may not play the role we see for ourselves, but we make a difference to those around us in countless ways we may never even recognize. Right. Just like your story with the 13 gifts. I mean, little ripples that are huge. Seemingly little acts may ripple out to make a big difference in other people's lives. A kind act that we do that we don't give much thought to may change someone's day or even their life. Right. Yeah. We may never know how our actions affect others, but in the end, everyone matters. And that's what I love. I wish I wrote down which company there's a company that they all have to watch. It's a wonderful life, which I think is brilliant. It's kind of like a team building. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, Which I, I needed to write down. I thought I would never forget it, but obviously I did. So I can see why, they would encourage their employees to watch It's a Wonderful Life. I think everyone should at least once, black and white or colorized, just go watch it. I will do it. <laughs> <laughs> encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Thessalonians 5.13. So our podcast yeah. is... Tangential inspiration because, like we say, we look for inspiration wherever we can find it. For sure. I know we're knowing that way. And sometimes that leads us into some super strange places. I'm going to tell you a little glimmer of hope in humanity that was found in one of the most hellish places on Earth. 
during one of the most dismal times in human history. But I, I just thought it matched our holiday theme. Okay. So, the trenches of Europe during World War One. Okay. Since this is our Christmas episode, I'm going to tie in another favorite of mine, A Christmas Carol, which I already oh, told you. Yeah. And although I tend to prefer the Muppet version, <laughs> um, in that the narrator warns the audience that they must remember that Jacob Marley is dead. Otherwise, what comes next won't seem wondrous. Oh. So I'm going to set the stage a bit with a background on the trenches of World War I. Otherwise, what follows won't seem wondrous. World War I broke out in Europe in 1914 and shortly engulfed the entire continent. The major players were Britain, France, Russia, and later the United States on the Allied side, and Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Turkey comprising the Central Powers. World War I was a mixture of modern and old-fashioned warfare, Horse cavalry units. Can you imagine? Okay. Wow, I didn't know that. They were still being used. The machine gun was a brand new weapon. Planes were first introduced into warfare using bike planes and aerial bombing. There was artillery, but no tanks and no missiles. Combat was mainly done by the infantry. Okay. So trench warfare covered much of Europe. These were literal... Trenches. I'm sure you've seen the yeah. pictures dug into dirt and mud, making long lines dozens of miles long where troops would hunker down to prevent enemies from advancing. Each side had their own network of trenches, and the land in between was called no man's land. Called that because neither side controlled it. Anyone crossing into no man's land was subject to enemy fire and artillery attacks. Nothing survived in no man's land, so obviously it wouldn't go. As most people, anyone who knows me, you know. I'm thinking of Wonder Woman. I know, and I was just thinking of that one scene. And my Wonder Woman wind up. I'm sorry. (laughs) The brain went there. Well, well, and that's one of my favorite scenes in that movie. I can visualize that. I'm with you. Exactly. We're Wonder Woman. She's in the trenches. She climbs up to cross no man's land and is immediately under fire by the German machine guns. And kicks for butt. Exactly. Wonder Woman, with the help of her magic bracelets and shield, of course, she makes it across. But the soldiers in World War I weren't so lucky. Men on both sides would live in these trenches for months at a time. In the summer, they'd be blazing hot. In the winter, they were freezing cold. And most of the rest of the time, they were wet and muddy. I oh. seriously would not. Sur- well, you have rain odds, too. You wouldn't. We yeah. would not survive oh, a day Fingers here. Fingers and toes would be just. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't survive. Often, there would be uh, a foot of muddy water in the trench. Sleeping required the men to figure out ways to hold themselves out of the water. The constant wetness would lead to trench foot, which basically caused the skin of the feet to start to rot. Oh, my gosh. Leading to infection and possible amputation. And this is just a nightmare. Supply shortages could make food and ammunition scarce. Diseases, they were commonplace. There was little protection from the elements, nor was there protection from oncoming artillery fire shells could be lobbed into the opposing side's trenches from miles away causing death by shrapnel concussive force or even the trench caving in and trapping the soldiers i'm feeling claustrophobic okay and cold i'm cold cold. yeah in the first five months of world war one four million soldiers were wounded or died in the trenches so life in the trenches literally was hell on earth like I said, 
I keep this image of life in the trenches in mind because if you do, what follows seems more wondrous. On December 7th, 2014, Pope Benedict XV called for the truce for Christmas. Have you heard about this? I have not, okay. no. The leadership on each side rejected the notion and no ceasefire was called. However, on Christmas Eve in 1914, in numerous places along 475 miles of the trenches crisscrossing Europe, something amazing happened. And there are like songs and videos. Aww. If you YouTube this, it's beautiful. But it started off with singing. Christmas carols were sung by troops in celebration of Christmas and to keep you know, spirits up. Right. In numerous places along the trenches, the Allied and Central Power forces were close enough to hear the other side sing. This led to both sides singing for the opposing side. Oh. There are accounts in some places of the German side starting up, you know, bands accompanying the singing, but the singing went on late into the night. Oh. Now, accounts differ on this, and reports are from a variety of locations along the trench lines, but it started with signs going up, wishing the other side Merry Christmas in the other side's native language. Christmas singing started up again, and the soldiers on both sides started peeking over the trenches to see the signs made by the other side. Keep in mind, just two days before, poking your head up was a good way to get shot in the face. So obviously this was done with caution and suspicion. I don't know that I'd ever be trusting enough right, to... Right, right. But you just can't think of the humanity. you just feeling know, that in the... I know. In you're, you know. But after a while, all these heads kept peeking up without anyone shooting. Some brave souls actually climbed up and crossed into the no-man's land. Still, nobody got shot. So more people came out of the trenches where they'd been pinned down for months. Soldiers from both sides shook hands and wished each other a Merry Christmas. Aww, Some of those, awesome. I know, I just, yeah, it'll make me cry. Some of the soldiers even exchanged gifts with the other side, trading food and cigarettes as Christmas gifts. There were even reports of soldiers getting haircuts from the enemy soldiers. Wow. That's There's cool. a story out there that there was a soccer game between oh. British troops and German troops. Historians have disputed it being an actual soccer match because it was more like a kick around with sure. the ball with the troops. But either way, it's it's fun, pretty, it's spirited, yeah, it is, something. and just miraculous. For this one day, soldiers who had spent months trying to kill each other set aside their differences and celebrated Christmas together. Peace reigned, kindness won. Christmas was celebrated for one day. There was some hope and some light in those trenches. A commonality between the combatants became more important than their differences in political divides. Guns were put down and hands were extended. This only happened that one year. In 1914, later on, Christmas truces were prevented by the leaders on both oh, sides. I know. That's too bad. Threatening discipline for soldiers, fraternizing with the enemy. So maybe it was a Christmas miracle that only happened one time in history, but maybe it could happen in one of those bloodiest conflicts. I just think that it could happen in, if it could happen in those most horrible conditions, then maybe we can find some peace and kindness now and overcome the differences facing our world today. Mm. There's always hope that Christmas miracles can happen. And I just, as sad as this story is, There's I hope it, exactly. And yeah. that's, what it boils down to and that's what's most important 
on my favorite part. <laughs> Getting to know Amy. I'm wondering what your favorite or least favorite thing about Christmas is. Mm-hmm. I think the stress of getting things done. Yeah, that's definitely my least favorite. It's yeah, mo- especially for moms. Right. I, just getting everything done that you think yeah. you need to get done. Yeah. It takes away from the, the, the from the joy. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. What is your um, favorite or your least favorite holiday food treat or? Mm, let's see. Um, I love fudge. Oh. I haven't had that in ages, but I love my mom. We just got back from the beach, and I... Did you buy fudge? I went to the Manzanita sweet shop, and the last two times I've been there, they have not had fudge, and I wanted to go to Bruce's, because they always have good fudge, fudge too. but we had the dogs, and I didn't want them to have to wait in the car, so I hear you with fudge. So, um, do you have a holiday cooking baking fail? And if so, what's your biggest one? Everything is a fail for me. <laughs> I'm not really good because at Ryan is the is the yeah. cook. And I so I can't even lucky. I can't even. I mean, I'm usually just a sidekick. So I can say though, in college, I tried to make him something in the microwave, and it, <laughs> it turned black. And I put a ton of frosting to camo. What did you try and make in the microwave? Back in the day, you could get a. Um, Brownie, brownie mix. mix. I was gonna in the that. microwave, and they sold it like in the cookie. Yeah, it was like yeah. in a little convenient oh my thing. Gosh. Can you imagine how yeah. terrible that was? For it was horrible. It was mm. it was solid rock, but tons of frosting on top. And what did he say? He was mm. nice. Thank you. Amy. Thank this you. Is delicious. What's so funny about that? My first meal that I made for Craig, I was like, "Come on over. We'll watch a movie." I made brownies. I burnt them. <laughs> and tater tots, which are two things. Yeah. Probably, so yeah. anyway, that's funny. Um, what is the strangest or the worst present you ever received? I don't know. I don't think I've gotten anything too strange, really. Um, Lucky you. But I can do what comes to mind. My sister got a uh, lint peel, uh, someone to, like to lint from her mother-in-law, and I remember laughing at that, like a hint, like Lynn. Yeah. So, but I, that's the thing that came and to my did. mind. Yeah, that's funny. Did you send out Christmas cards? I used to. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't in a couple of years. I know. I think most people haven't. Yeah. Years, so. Happy life is made up of little things: a gift sent, a letter written. A call made, a recommendation given, transportation provided, a cake made, a book lent, a check sent. Carol Holmes. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for listening. Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. Or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.